we all get the memo as young girls, like must be perfect. And that's a challenge. That's a big challenge to being a good leader. It's a challenge to having a happy life. Hello and welcome to Grow Up, an AVG Canada podcast where we give strategic thinkers and creative tinkers opportunities to grow. I'm your host, Michelle Lee, and today on the show, we're catching up with Nancy Vonk and Janet Keston, co-founders of SWIM, a creative leadership lab that works with companies to grow and support collaborative, fearless leaders. Now, prior to SWIM, Nancy and Janet were co-chief creative officers of Ogilvy Toronto and the brain trust behind Dove's campaign for real beauty. Nancy and Janet were inducted into Canada's Marketing Hall of Legends in 2011, and in 2012, they joined Advertising Age's 100 Most Influential Women in Advertising. Nancy and Janet have been inspiring mentors for women in this industry, and today is no different. They're here to share their top five tips on how to fail brilliantly as women in advertising. Just before we dive in, we'd like to give a special shout out to the team at Tank for sponsoring today's episode. As one of Canada's leading strategy departments and supporters of strategic planning, they've shown a keen interest in continuing to help us foster and strengthen Canada's strategic talent. And for that, we thank you. Now let's get into the show. Nancy and Janet, welcome to the show. Uh, I'm super pumped to have you here today. Terrific. If you could introduce yourself to our listeners, tell us a bit about your background, um, why this topic is so important to you, and then uh, we'll launch into your five tips. 30 years ago-ish. I was uh, in my second year of trying to get out of advertising, which I hadn't been in for very long. And I and I got a call from Ogilvy asking me if I would spend my Victoria Day long weekend freelancing with a woman I'd never met. And, you know, who really wants to give that time up? But uh, Ogilvy needed a female writer, which meant only one thing. Oh, yay. It was a feminine hygiene job because that was literally the only reason agencies ever specified needing a female team at that time. And it seemed like a really dumb way to spend your long weekend, but it's how we met. And that weekend completely changed our lives. We started to work together at Ogilvy and we started there as a creative team and um, eventually became the chief creative officers, as you said, and we worked on all kinds of fab brands like Dove and Shreddies and Timex and Laura Secord, who got younger on every box of chocolate that we bought and the work, you know, the work that we did and the people who worked for, worked for us did, um, won all the fancy hardware over time. But I, I would say that, um, we, in a way for everything that looks like all the success, we had a kind of classic female response to uh, being invited to take the chief creative officer, sorry, being invited to take the chief creative officer role, which was that we were offered that job multiple times over several years, and we kept turning it down and saying to each other and ourselves and our bosses that we weren't ready, thinking we weren't good enough, being fairly sure we would blow it. And so I think that we live, lived with that kind of um, little, you know, you're going to fall on your face, um, little character on your shoulder that that tells you that you're not good enough. And um, so we, we, we have had a lifelong passion for the struggles of of women and that uh, made its way into a book and into a huge amount of our ad work 
and the work that we do today, which maybe Nance would talk about. We left it all in 2011. We left advertising in 2011, um, maybe partly having hit our, our 50s and, and wondering the eternal question, is this all there is? <laughs> Even though this was pretty good. Um, and we, we ultimately ended up focusing on what we had the most passion for with SWIM uh, in SWIM, which is growing people. And we'd always had an outsized interest in mentoring and helping people go up the ladder. Um, and SWIM, the SWIM Leadership Lab is, you could say it's our, our answer to the fact that they don't give you the, the manual with the promotion. Um, we certainly didn't get one. And we certainly were stumbling along and fumbling along as once Janet and I got past our paralyzing fear of failure to take the job, we, we surely didn't have a glass smooth ride to, to get to the point where we felt like we were pretty good at what we did. So um, swim is based on the expression sink or swim because that's how people have traditionally learned and we kind of exist to help people to swim. So we work with mostly ad agencies around the world and mostly with creative people, although we've worked with everybody under the roof too. Um, and we're there to equip them with the skill set that they don't learn on the job and help them to be better, better leaders with people wanting to follow them. Um, and after working, you know, now it's been 11 some years. Um, and this leads us up to this topic that we really are so interested in talking about. We, there are a few challenges that have really emerged as being universal at every level, every industry, um, and that is fear of failing. It's a big thing. It's a thing, not wanting to make mistakes. Um, not a shock, right? But it, it is, to be sure, especially hard for women. And we, we would observe that we all get the memo as young girls, like must be perfect. And that, that is, uh, that's a challenge. That's a big challenge to being a good leader. It's a challenge to having a happy life for that matter. So we, you know, we've looked at the question with others so many times now, you know, well, what's wrong with striving for perfect anyway? Like what's wrong with, trying to never fail. Like who wants to fail? No one. But what's wrong with it is if we're, if we're really, if that's our, our worldview, then it's going to keep our ideas small. You know, when you play it safe and you color inside the lines, um, it's, it can lead straight to mediocrity when you're not open to stretch so far that you might fail. It can stall your career, right? It can stall your career. Um, I think that uh, responding to failure is generally where the growth spurts happen. So when we're conditioned to be perfect, like Nancy said, or when we're conditioned to avoid failing, it also um, stalls our growth and that affects our careers. I'm curious because you said, um, I think, Janet, originally that 
you know, you got asked, both of you got asked multiple times to be uh, the chief creative officer at Ogilvy and you said no until you finally said yes. What, what caused you to finally say yes? Um, I think it was one of those funny, it was one of those funny things. We were, we both had, had young kids at the time. And so that was one of the things that we were wrestling with was how do you, I mean, such a big question for women in general, how do you actually have a life that works and a work life that, that works? And, and we also were, were struggling with that when we were facing up to a, a really big job opportunity. And earlier on, we had said no for all the reasons that, that I mentioned. And then, um, we had, we were like, 40-ish at that point. And we had decided that we we were we kind of were settling into who our who we were and having more confidence in what we could offer. But also they were looking at that point at bringing in a new chief creative officer and every person that they were talking to was a guy. And we knew all of them and many of them had offered us jobs in the past and we said no. And so there was partly a, like, why would we work for you in our agency when we didn't want to come work for you in yours? And, um, and, and so we kind of said to ourselves, well, you know, if they can do it, we can do it. Like, why would we, why would we let somebody else do it at this moment? And, and we decided that if we did it together and Ogilvy was open to it being either of us or both of us, which is a really wonderful and rare opportunity offered, especially at that point. And, and we decided that if we did it together, that was our best shot at actually being good moms and good CCOs. I also find it really interesting when you mentioned before, you know, kind of girls are, are groomed or conditioned to be perfect. Um, and you talked about how, you know, you don't really get a manual when you have a promotion. But isn't it so interesting? There's been so many studies that have been done about men. And obviously, this is a massive stereotype, but that men don't wait to be ready for the next promotion or the next level. They just it kind of leap. No, well, we've seen we've seen those studies too, uh, and and it is, and we've watched it, right? Like we didn't need studies to exactly tell us that. Um, so yeah, men, men, as they say, men only need to feel like fourteen percent ready. <laughs> you know, it was some crazy stat like that that I I last saw. Uh, compared to women, need to be a hundred percent ready, and I think that was definitely at play with Janet and I, and I. Um, we didn't give ourselves, we didn't see it in ourselves. We just, we were waiting to be ready and we were going to wait and wait and wait till that, as she said, that moment of, well, shit, no, we're not going to work for that guy. <laughs> and it caught us over <laughs> our, our own little bar our own little barrier, our own little fake barrier. So, so then I'm curious. So, so what, what is the counsel that you give um, to women now in, in terms of failing brilliantly? I mean, um, it's it's so great to get your your mentorship. I mean, so many of us are you know still partway through our career, even starting in our career. Uh, love to hear what you have uh, garnered over those years. Recognizing that failure is inevitable, right? It, it it doesn't matter how hard we try 
not to step on the landmines. We are going to step on them one way or another. And, and so as far as we're concerned, there's literally only one thing you can do. And that is get as brilliant at failing as you possibly can and come to terms to, with the fact that it's going to be a lifelong struggle for a lot of people. Some people, I guess, are just naturally better at it than others. But, um, but I think for most of us, it's a choice every time to, um, to kind of open your arms to it, embrace it, not allow yourself to be, you know, totally dragged down into the muck and beat yourself to death over every, um, every trip up that there is. And a bunch of years ago, a bunch of years ago, uh, Nancy and I were at an event where the um, speaker was the then conductor of the Boston Philharmonic, a guy called Benjamin Zander, who is also a professor, professor and a leadership guru guy. And he said the most extraordinary thing in that talk. He said that when his musicians make a mistake, he asks them not to give in to the doubt and not do the self-flagellation and to say instead, how fascinating uh, in response to every mistake. So I know this isn't TV, but I'm going to ask that you and Nancy in this moment with me, fling your arms in the air and say in an impassioned voice, how fascinating, as loud as you can. Can we do that? Okay. Yes. One, two, three. How fascinating. <laughs> so, and, and I got to say, how fascinating. Thank you. Um, I think that um, a lot of people say that failure is an opportunity to learn. And that if you are learning, you are not failing. One of the, the things that, that Xander says that's different that I, I personally really, really love is that for him, he says not only is it learning, it represents a world of possibility to take that, that approach to, to, you know, mistakes and whatnot. And hearing that was an epiphany for us. And um, and I got to say, it was an epiphany that didn't always stick, but, and so we ever after we tried to really look at all the stumbles and falls in that way. And it's hard because we're conditioned to blame ourselves and beat ourselves up. But personally, whenever I've done it or encouraged someone else to do it, it was incredibly liberating. So, so he is, a, so I, I think really um, the first tip if you want to call it that is is really to reframe failure and look for the the opportunity in it because the, the learning will will come and then you can go bigger than that and nobody ever went bigger around failure than malcolm mclaren um you know you know malcolm mclaren Nats, can you why don't you say I, yeah, I, I, as we thought about this, um, ben, Benjamin Zander and his, um, evil counterpart, Malcolm McLaren came to mind as, as perfect reference points on reframing failure. He was, um, Malcolm was the manager of the Sex Pistols. So that might be his biggest claim to fame, but he was also very famous in fashion. He was Vivian Westwood's husband and creative partner. Um, 
So he started out as a fashion designer in London, and we had the amazing opportunity of hearing him chat with a, a small group in Cape Town long, many years ago. And he was talking about this incredibly colorful career he had had, and he said that he absolutely lived by the words of an art teacher he had, like his whole career. And that teacher had said, we will all be failures, but at least be a magnificent, noble failure. Anyone can be a success. <laughs> so he claimed that he despised success. He literally strived to fail. And um, he had this great quote. He said, you can be authentic or you can be karaoke. And somehow he saw authenticity as, as attached to failure. So uh, I'll just, this, this one story is just stuck so vividly in my mind that he shared. He said he opened his first fashion boutique in London and he wanted to make it impossible for any customers to enter it. He said the first step down was six feet and it was, there was mud on the floor. <laughs> so, so what happens? People are pounding the door down to come break their legs coming down the first steps and go and buy his clothing, which had no price tags on them. Like at every turn, it was like fail, 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 fail. Anyway, love, love his rules for living, which took him to fame and fortune, ironically, I guess, or I guess th there was that method in the madness. Um, but ultimately, before we move on to the next kind of tip, I just wanted to point out too, about as we look at reframing failure as a good thing, yay, you failed because people actually relate to people who make mistakes like they do. Um, people are less attracted to people who are so-called perfect, appear to be perfect. So something Janet and I constantly tell people that go through our swim programs is that perfect is the wrong goal. Clearly let's get over it. Yeah. I think that explains the popularity of fuck up nights. Am I allowed to say, am I allowed to say fuck on this? <laughs> I think that. <laughs> so, so if you think about fuck up nights, right, people stand on a stage, share a monster fail and what they learn from it. And, and other people, Go to listen to them them talk about it, and and I I expect it makes us all feel like we're in this together, you know. And and some of those people are really famous who go to the fuck up nights, and they've screwed up massively. And then there's just regular people like us who regularly screw up massively too. <laughs> well, I mean, I I really like um, before how you said you know, and I absolutely did it, raising my arms in the air and saying how fascinating because it absolutely adds some levity. I think, to the whole thing as well. I think at, at the exact moment of failure, it can seem so incredibly serious and like it's such a big deal. And it kind of like the, the further you can get away from it and the more you can put it in your rear view mirror and, and add that dose of, oh, isn't, isn't, isn't that curious? Um, it just feels like it makes it that much lighter. What, uh, what, what else do you counsel? Um, I'm going to say this. I want you to picture this. Um, in all caps, in neon, blinking neon, for God's sake, do the postmortem. <laughs> for God's sake. After any fail, and this, and, and yes, certainly um, whole groups 
can can and should do them we we most often think of that as happening like after the big pitch that we didn't win like okay we'll we'll try to do the postmortem on that but we could as individuals after any fail after any mistake decide to reflect on that and take the lessons from it i mean that's the golden opportunity that failure offers as Janet mentioned, right? Like failing is a, leads to learning. Um, I think most of us know we should do it on some level and we rarely, rarely do. It, it's amazing to me that agencies are so shit at this that we don't have, because there's so much to be gained, there's no discipline around it. So, you know, what can you do? Well, you as an individual can decide to to do it for yourself and maybe help drive it at your at your company for that matter. Um, you know, simple questions. What happened? What could have gone differently? Would you make the same choice again? I mean, it, this is, this is not hard. It just takes a little bit, you know, making it, a, making it a habit is, is something to strive for. And I, I loved the, um, I loved the kind of reinforcement for this that came from this really odd experience once of being at uh, the C2 Creativity Conference in Montreal a few years ago. Part of it was um, dedicated to giving awards to people in science who had had huge breakthroughs that year. So we ended up in, in that little event. Um, and one of the recipients, they were each asked to explain, well, how did you have this giant breakthrough in whatever thing? And this very serious man of science clearly looked like one and talked like one in sort of a monotone, uh, accepted his award. And he explained that um, his achievement was possible thanks to um, the recognition that there is approximately 100 times more to learn from failures than successes so we focus on the failures. <laughs> like that was it. And he said it like, like this was common sense, you know, clearly. Uh, so anyway, that's, that's, that's all I think I need to say about postmortems. It's, it's, a, it's just a, um, a thing to treasure instead of uh, think of it as very, as something that's a nice to do. Can I share a little postmortem story that um, stands out for me about me? So, so um, a few years before we we left Ogilvy, I was doing a government pitch, and unlike regular pitches, which are you know nerve wracking but they're fun, um, the government had a really strict, super dry structure. So you only have half an hour. You have to answer very specific questions. You have to say beforehand who's going to answer which questions. There's no theater or spontaneity allowed. Um, and a couple of weeks before that, I'd been in a presentation skills training thingy. And the upshot was that I talk too fast and I use my hands too much. So I decided that I was going to try to do this presentation to the government using the techniques that I had learned in the training. So I talked slower. I tried to be conscious of the hand action. 
And then a few days later, when they called our managing director to say that we had lost, they said, by the way, was your creative director on drugs? <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God. So I'm sitting with, with her, the managing director, and, and we literally had to do a postmortem on why I seemed like I was on drugs. And I learned to be more mindful of my hands in general, but also not to try to conform to what works for someone else. And I think part of, of you know, I, I do think we, a lot of us learn by imitation and then it gets hard to find yourself in there and, and finding yourself and bringing that to the way you lead is part of what makes you successful at that. Wow, that's a that's a great story that is now seared in my mind. Thank you. Great. So do the postmortem in all caps. Um, what else would you? Uh, what other tips would you give our listeners? So um, in Swim, we work with a, a New York acting coach named Dina Levy, who talks a lot about um, failing up. So we're borrowing that tip from her. Fail up. We're all steeped in the belief that failure is bad. And I don't know about whether it is or it isn't. I do know that it's inevitable. So the goal is to find what works in the mistake and then run with that. So Dina always gives this, this example in our, in our classes. She always, she always says to people, so you're in a movie and you have to, it's directed by Steven Spielberg and you have to go to his office for some reason. As you start to open the door, the crystal doorknob, comes off in your hand. What do you do? And people always look stunned and people mimic like putting the crystal doorknob in their pocket or behind their back. And they, so people generally act like they're trying to hide it. And there's always somebody who says, I walk into the room and I say, Mr. Spielberg, look at this stunning crystal doorknob. I thought it would be perfect for the door to this office. So that is an example of failing up. So turning the fail into a gift. And um, so for me, one of the great fears that I always have when we're um, speaking in public or, or standing on any kind of a stage teaching, doing whatever, where we're in a, in a public forum is that the technology will fail. And of course, it almost always does. And that used to make me feel like all panicky and, and, you know, make my throat dry. And then I was uh, giving a talk at a kind of one of the fancy pants U.S. universities. And um, of course, the technology completely failed and an army of tech people come rushing out to do something about it. And there's this profound silence in the room. And I walked out into the audience and just started introducing myself personally to the individuals in the room and asking their names. And I invited them to just use the time as a kind of a spontaneous, ask me anything. And by the time the tech was up and running again, we were all friends. And I was really nervous about this particular talk because, you know, the school had like an, an Ivy League name on it. And you're allowed to um, say Princeton, Janet. You seem to be going out of your way uh, to uh, not say Princeton. <laughs> I would say Princeton. Um, but, but I, yeah, I felt so, I like, I don't know why I was so unnerved by that, but I was. And, but because in a way the, the, the tech failure 
gave me time to make friends with the audience. And once I was friends with the audience, I wasn't scared of them anymore. I, I wasn't saying, you know, that 20 year old so much smarter than me. And it became one of the easiest talks I ever gave. So the screw up made the talk better. So if you can find the gift in the screw up, things actually go better. It, it sounds like you're, you know, you said before, kind of embrace it. It's like really lean in hard <laughs> to it. Yeah, yeah. Because there's, there's all kinds of goodness hiding inside of what looks like badness. So fail up would be the next one, I think. Yeah. Yeah. As you were talking, I, I, I wrote down improv. It kind of reminded me a little bit of that. It's, it's, uh, there's something about kind of being flexible and being agile. I think, I think if you take failure too seriously, you automatically kind of shut down and you kind of, you know, dive into that, the, the badness of the failure. But if you maybe reframe it and as you think, think about it more pos, uh, positively, uh, you can be more expansive and as you say, find the goodness in, in what's bad. And yeah, that, and that mindset of, uh, lighten up already, right? <laughs> lighten up already. And that kind of takes us to our, to our next tip, which, um, is to care less what other people think. Just care less. Um, we, we take it so deadly seriously. And it honestly, I mean, did everybody live? Okay. Let's just, let's not act like. It was, it was life and death. Um, and the, the absolute truth is that, okay, so you messed up in front of others. They don't really care that you messed up or that you might have been wrong. We have this hilarious human trait that we, this is actually, this is like clinically true. Human beings actually think maybe because we're just by design so egocentric we think everybody else cares about our our uh, performance our our mess up as much as we do like we actually have this notion that into the evening and the next day and who knows how far into the future they're going to be thinking about what we just did <laughs> And the fact is, like, they deleted it from their hard drive, like, a minute after or less after it happened. It just, it just doesn't matter. Um, so I think that to hold on to that and, like, get a grip, that it's just not a thing uh, in most cases, you know, nine out of ten times. Um, it's just not going to, to live on. So we might as well care less right then and there. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that is so contradictory to the auto replay, I think that goes on in most of our heads. And we just like to berate ourselves with the, you know, the soundtrack of our failure over and over again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think like people just don't care. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it really is interesting, though. It's like at the heart of it, why? Why are women so much harder on themselves? And, and you know, we talked a little bit about that being conditioned to perfection and, and all that. Um, I, I, it makes, you know, the, the whole nature nurture, I mean, are, are, are men just kind of, you know, are they, are they encouraged to just, you know, go for it and be more ambitious and, and strive? I don't know. It could probably be the topic of a whole other conversation. Girls are rewarded for not making mistakes where, where boys are celebrated for getting, you know, 
for for even for having that accident where they broke their arm or got a scar. It's a badge of honor. The girls, whoa, don't risk that. Anyway, it's true. We this is this is something we could we could really uh, drill down into on, on another show, perhaps much deeper. Yeah, <laughs> the follow up. Um, mm. Okay, so I. I've got recognize that failure is inevitable, uh, do the post-mortem, fail up, care less. What's your final tip? Stop catastrophizing. Stop catastrophizing. We, we picture, you know, end of the world over making mistakes, um, failing, things that, that honestly, objectively – if one could be objective, really, we're not even remotely close to being the end of the world. Um, my daughter points out to me, by the way, that I am like a world-class catastrophizer. <laughs> she gives me the prize, the trophy for it. So I, I really feel this one. Um, and our, our, feel, our fear of failure that's, that's driving that can can take us to imagining the absolute worst is about to happen, like in a high stakes situation, the big presentation, for instance. And that catastrophic thinking just sends our fear of failure like right through the roof. Um, it's at the as it's at the heart of stage fright. Like Jenna and I both have absolutely paralyzing stage fright. Um, nine out of ten people have it to some degree. And that's all about the fear of fucking up. Um, sorry for the F-bomb again. But like, I'm that person, like, it, it, grade three, I'm like the star of the school play. I'm singing, I'm dancing in the spotlight. I'm loving it. By the time I'm in high school, I'm like hiding in the chorus at the back of the stage. Um, I was so afraid of failure in that setting that, you know, and I took that right into, you know, into my career where, gee, it would make a lot of sense if I'm to talk in front of a lot of people from time to time. But I, I avoided it and avoided it for years because my catastrophic thinking was taking me to, well, I'm going to forget what I need to say. I'm going to pass out. I'm going to make a fool of myself. I'm going to, people are going to know I'm a big fraud. Like, on and on and on and on, just from even imagining what's what's about to happen in, in that extreme way. Um, so, uh, you know, we have a little technique to share, actually, around this specific thing that nine out of 10 people, as I say, <laughs> struggle with. And what we learned about in this example of the stage fright is, is that catastrophic thinking is happening in your brain, it's a it's an anxiety response between two parts of your brain that are, have kind of gone haywire, um, and so there's a technique that I use all the time that has the effect of disrupting that and helping you to just calm right down. So before, for instance, you know, any high stakes event like public speaking or pitching the boss for a promotion or doing a big presentation, um, anyone can do this, this wild thing, which is to, again, from a cognitive scientist, I, you cannot make this up. 
I'd say go to a private place like the bathroom. You don't want people to see you do this necessarily. And strike the Wonder Woman pose. Like literally, your hands on your hips, your legs apart. There you are standing really erect, pretending to be really confident. And the weirdest thing happens physically, which is that releases chemicals that, again, they disrupt that anxious response in your brain. I do a lot of public speaking. I do it in the bathroom every time before I go onto that stage. Um, it's, it works. What can I tell you? It works. Yeah, that's super interesting. I think I heard a TED talk about that, kind of the whole, the, the, the connection between kind of physically, even if you're, you know, you got your chest out, you're standing up straight and it, it it's the whole fake it before you make it kind of just, right. <laughs> just yeah, pretend yeah. you've got it and then you've got it. Well, yeah, and that's, um, I know the TED talk you're talking about, and that's Amy Cuddy is her name, really worth watching. More great tips in the TED talk. It's interesting also when you were talking about catastrophizing, um, a lot of women I know, especially really successful ones, are all all type A. And we, we're always, and you know, if we're mothers or whatever, we're also, or even if you're not, we're always planning ahead. We're always anticipating what's going to happen. And it's almost like a little choose your own adventure. Well, if this happens and this happens, but if that happens and that happens. And so I feel like it's only natural then that we're, we become so good at this kind of like snowball effect and, and imagining the worst. Yeah. And, and we imagine it in ordinary in our, or like, small events too. I mean, I think what's so frustrating about it and and sad in a way is because we're all so busy anticipating the worst, we, I mean, up to a point, it sort of makes sense when you think about um, a big event that you would, you would say to yourself, okay, I, I need to make sure I get this right. But it trickles down into our ordinary day to day and into our ordinary lives. When we, when we teach, we often um, ask people, you know, what's the worst that can happen if you make a mistake in your, just to think about what they think is the worst that would happen if they made a mistake. We don't even describe the scale of the mistake. And the first place everybody goes is all get fired. And I mean, it could be the smallest thing, yet they're telling themselves they'll, they'll get fired. And, and it, it, it's, it goes right into uh, the way that we behave in so many different aspects of our lives. And so, so this past weekend, I was staying at a friend's place out of, outside of Toronto and she was not there. And, um, she had, you know, left me the house for, for a couple of days. And I invited a couple of friends over for tea and one of them picked up a cookbook that was on, on a shelf. And this caused all the other cookbooks to slide and hit this super delicate scallop edged bowl that was on the shelf, breaking it. And I was beside myself and this was very late at night. We had gone, we, we had gone to the theater and then we were all having tea afterwards. So it was late when this happened and they left and I sat in my bed and I composed this like eight line note to my friend, letting her know what had happened. And I'm saying things to myself like, what if it was a family heirloom? And inside of those eight lines, I have found three different ways to apologize because I feel so terrible. 
And then when I, I woke up at like six in the morning, there was no note from my friend, no note at 6.30, no note at seven o'clock, nothing. And I'm thinking, oh my God, she's devastated. She's trying to calm down before she writes me back, right? If that's not catastrophizing, I don't know what it is. But so a little after nine, she writes me and says, oh, don't worry, it's just a thing. And so I turned an accident into a catastrophe and we're all so conditioned and women in particular to find ourselves at fault that we over apologize for what calls for an apology and end up apologizing for what really doesn't need one at all. So owning our mistakes is important, but going on and on about it, you know, maybe not. Sometimes a bowl is just a bowl. Great. Well, um, we, we really appreciate you you joining us today and sharing these tips. I mean, you, you both have obviously been so massively successful in your career and, and failure obviously is not something that I would associate with either of you. Um, but it's really uh, humanizing to hear how you've managed to reframe it and push through. Um, and, and I'm sure we can all uh, leverage these, these uh, tips immediately to kind of you know, help ourselves feel a little bit better and to find the good um, in the failure, find the, find the learning opportunity. Thank you for joining today's episode of Grow Up. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, share the episode and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Next week, we'll be chatting with OG freelance strategist Darla Miazdek and Allison Savage on how to thrive as a freelancer. See you then.